The overturning of Roe v. Wade continues to send shockwaves through not only the United States of America, but also our allies internationally. For the first time, many are discovering that the overturning of Roe and the ending of our extreme abortion jurisprudence actually doesn't change that much on the ground in the states that will continue to be pro-abortion. And that in states that are embracing pro-life law and policy, well, most American pro-life law mirrors European-style protections. For instance, Mississippi's law, which the Supreme Court just upheld, well, that protects life at 15 weeks of a preborn child's life. This means that Mississippi's law was, in fact, more liberal on the abortion issue than the abortion laws that are on the books in nations like Italy or France or most other European allies. If Roe's reversal means that even pro-life states will generally mimic European-style laws, where killing is still permissible throughout maybe the first few weeks or months of a child's life, does this really represent a true pro-life victory? There's more to be done. Americans United for Life will continue to call upon the executive, legislative, and judicial branches to clarify that abortion is fundamentally incompatible with constitutional justice. We will continue to call upon the U.S. Supreme Court to clarify that natural human rights precede the letter of any constitution and that our first and most fundamental of all human rights, the human right to life, means that unborn children are entitled to the equal protection of the laws. Today, we'll listen in to an important conversation hosted by our friends at Live Action on June 24th, 2022. What you're about to hear was streamed live and discussed the day of the release of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision and its reversal of Roe v. Wade. Catherine Glenn Foster, president and CEO of Americans United for Life, speaks on what true constitutional justice looks like and how the pro-life movement can cast a vision of a truly brighter future for all. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I am Tom Shakely, and today we're hearing from Noah Brandt, Government Affairs Director at Live Action. We're hearing Noah lead a conversation that took place live on Twitter Spaces the day that the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and upheld Mississippi's life-saving law. This is, of course, the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. In the conversation we're about to hear, Noah leads a dialogue featuring Josh Craddock, affiliated scholar with James Wilson Institute, and Catherine Glenn Foster, president and CEO of Americans United for Life, with a cameo appearance by yours truly. All right, let's listen in. Welcome. Welcome to this uh, Twitter Spaces. This is Noah Brandt. I'm the director of government affairs here live action uh, on this extremely exciting day, an amazing day, a day that so many people have been uh, praying and working towards uh, for years and years and years. You know, we hope to have Lila Rose, our president, on too, but I'm also excited to be able to facilitate this conversation to not only sort of give a reaction and analysis to the Dobbs decision, but specifically talk about what this decision means when it comes to the 14th Amendment, right? 
the 14th Amendment is so interesting because the 14th Amendment was in many ways the basis of that original Roe v. Wade decision. Today, the court has ruled the 14th Amendment does not contain a right to abortion and it couldn't be more right. Uh, but maybe the 14th Amendment has a little bit more going on. Maybe the 14th Amendment can tell us, give us a roadmap of what uh, we're heading towards public policy wise and in the courts when it comes to the protection of human life. One of the experts we have, uh, along with me, Noah Brandt, Director of Government Affairs at Live Action, is Josh Craddock, who's a constitutional attorney, a fellow at the James Wilson Institute, uh, and a great friend who's been doing a lot of work on this. Josh, can you introduce yourself and just sort of give your reaction to the opinion today and what it, where does it set us? What's this new status quo following this opinion in Dobbs that overruled Roe? Yeah, absolutely. Noah, thanks uh, for inviting me. Thanks to Live Action for hosting this space. I have to admit that, you know, this is the most significant Supreme Court decision in my lifetime and in probably all of our lifetimes. There's nothing like it that's ever happened before. And it's just, uh, I truly wept with joy this morning. Um, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. But uh, the the key holding from this uh, decision was that uh, Roe and Casey must be overruled. And this is a quote from the opinion, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion. No such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. And it pointed out that uh, by the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy, and the remaining states soon followed. Uh, So the bottom line conclusion was that Roe's constitutional analysis was far outside the bounds of any reasonable interpretation of the various constitutional provisions to which it vaguely pointed. So those are all direct quotes uh, from the decision today in Dobbs. Uh, Roe, basically Roe and Casey are gone. Uh, Those two decisions have been overturned. And so at least at this stage, Uh, The question of abortion has been basically the question presented to the court, whether there's a constitutional right to abortion has been answered in the negative. There is no such constitutional right. And so now the question becomes, how are we going to approach abortion on a nationwide level? Right now, policy is going to be made by the states. Different states are going to be making their laws, already have laws on the books dealing with abortion. And so the next question for us is, how are we going to continue to fight for comprehensive protection of life in the womb uh, at all stages in throughout America nationwide? And so that's that's kind of our next task as we move forward from this decision. Yeah, thank you, Josh. You know, that's that's a great a great place to to jump off from. You know, before we get into how how exactly the 14th Amendment can apply, you know, going forward. Can you talk about some of the scholarship that you've done on the 14th Amendment and what its intents are when it comes to abortion and life? Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote an article for the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy uh, that basically addresses the historical analysis of when the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868, what the original meaning of the word person was. And I I found that the original meaning of the word person included every member of the human family, including specifically uh, children in the womb. So uh, I also would recommend looking at the excellent, excellent uh, amicus brief that was filed in the Dobbs case by Professor Robert George of Princeton and John Finnis of Oxford University, uh, making this same argument. And basically, you know, when you look back to the history, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, and, and just for context, the 14th Amendment says that uh, 
no person shall be, the state can't deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then here's the really important part, uh, nor shall it deprive any person of the equal protection of the laws. And so the question is, who who is the who is this guarantee cover? Uh, does it cover every member of the human family? Does it include children in the womb? And because equal protection of the laws includes the protection of the homicide laws and the basic protections against homicide that all born persons uh, share. So the history that I looked at, there are three strands of evidence. You know, we look. I looked at the dictionaries of common and legal usage at the time of the 14th Amendment's adoption that define the terms person and human being interchangeably. It's very clear that the 14th Amendment was designed to protect, and specifically its equal protection guarantee was designed to protect every natural person, that is every human being, uh, right? There's artificial persons like uh, like corporations, but there's every natural person uh, is, is every human being. And actually, the second line of evidence that I looked at, the common law, reaffirms that. So if you look at Blackstone's commentaries. Uh, in fact, the, his commentaries were very influential on uh, the framers of our Constitution and specifically the framers of the 14th Amendment. If you look at the Blackstone's commentaries, the first book is about the rights of persons. And the first chapter of that book is begins with a discussion of the rights of children in the womb and says that basically uh, as soon as human life can be detected, uh, there is there should be legal protection. And so a human being is distinguished from a thing, property, and Blackstone and these legal treatise writers at the time of the 14th Amendment were very clear that unborn children in the womb were legal persons at common law. And then the last thing I looked at was what what people said when they were passing the 14th Amendment, right? We all know that the 14th Amendment was passed just after the Civil War and specifically addressed to the issue of, you know, the vast human rights abuse against African Americans and the, the, the scourge of slavery that existed in the United States. And it was designed to ensure that nothing like that would ever happen again and that every Amer- every human being, every person, would be entitled to the equal protection of the laws and that certain classes of persons wouldn't be singled out for invidious discrimination. As in in that context, in 1868, it was specifically the extrajudicial killings of African-Americans in the South by the KKK. So this amendment was designed to ensure that states would equally apply their laws and specifically the homicide laws to every class of persons. Now you'll note that the 14th Amendment doesn't say it only applies to African Americans. Certainly that was what it was designed to do uh, initially and what it was primarily focused on. But the framers of the 14th Amendment were forward looking. They realized that if it could happen to blacks at that time and that their rights could be denied, that it could happen to other classes of persons in the future. And so they carefully chose that phrase, any person, to include any member of the human family that might be denied the equal protection of the laws. And so they were very clear that it included the lowest and most despised of the human race, is what one drafter of the 14th Amendment said. So it's very clear when you look at the historical context that uh, personhood included all human beings. And so that's really our jumping off point as we move on from Dobbs. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, so with that context, you know, we don't want to bury the lead you know, live action, our position, and I think that a growing group of sort of influential uh, lawyers and legal intellectuals and people who understand what the 14th Amendment is supposed to mean, we don't believe the Constitution is silent on abortion, right? Justice Kavanaugh, especially in his concurrence today in Dobbs, made that pretty clear. He believes the Constitution is silent on abortion, you know, it should be neutral, uh, it doesn't have a right to abortion, but it doesn't have a right to life. We disagree. We think the Constitution does have a right to life, 
in the 14th Amendment. I also want to welcome another person I want us to give uh, to hear thoughts from, which is Catherine Glenn Foster, who's the president and CEO of Americans United for Life and a great attorney uh, in her own respect. Catherine, can you just sort of give us your reaction to the uh, Dobbs decision um, and also respond to anything Josh said about uh, where we head with the 14th Amendment and preserving the right to life across the country? Um, <laughs> pleasure to be here. It's actually my first time in this uh, Twitter Spaces thing, um, but you know, thanks for for having all of us on. It really is. It's a euphoric day for for Americans, um, for pro life Americans, and in time, I do believe it will be um, just a, a really historic moment for all Americans um, as things start to settle down and and as people you know take a deep breath and realize you know as as recent polling shows a poll that we just um, we teamed up with YouGov to conduct. Uh, we we found that 90% of Americans recognize that abortion ends the life of a human being prior to birth. So this is something that really Americans can agree on. We are uh, we're really united on this. And so, um, you know, we, we need to um, we need to take a look at the opinion. And what that that language reveals is that um, even among um, even among pro-lifers, even among the anti-Roe justices, there, there are differing opinions about what the Constitution says. We look at Justice Kavanaugh, and he clearly believes that the Constitution is neutral on abortion. I think that's wrong. Uh, I don't think that any judge gets to bracket moral or scientific realities about human beings when they interpret a Constitution. It, that position, it, it's not common sense. It, it, it doesn't make sense for, for our, our framework um, or rationally. It's, it's really just legal positivism. And it's it's disappointing. Um, you look at Chief Justice Roberts, and that's shown us he's shown us the crucial importance of winning elections and and of appointing explicitly pro life justices. So we we need to continue to follow the approach that that President Trump and and McConnell took to the nominations of pro life justices, and especially most explicitly in the case of Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. Um, but I think, um, and AUL believes, that we really need a twofold approach to abolishing abortion. We need to powerfully advocate for a constitutional amendment that's modeled on the, on the 13th Amendment, um, and it would declare that abortion shall not exist within the United States, and it would empower any citizen withstanding to bring abortionists and abortion businesses to a court of justice. Um, but that's not all. I also think that we need to encourage the courts and encourage judges to remember that the constitutional order is built upon the broader order of reality that existed before a single word of that document was written. Um, and in reality, human persons, we do not get our fundamental rights from government, you know human beings, we get our rights from our very nature as rational creatures. And so uh, judges and justices need to respect the reality of human rights um, that existed prior to any government and prior to any constitution. And they need to rule in a common sense way that incorporates legal protections for children through the 14th Amendment, just as judges have included uh, women in the 14th Amendment's protections and, and Native Americans and immigrants and, and, and countless others who weren't explicitly named at the time of the amendment's writing. And so what we need to do is, is really to pursue an all of the above approach on the path to total abolition of abortion in America uh, when it comes to the law, as well as when it comes to policies um, and resources to help the women and the men who are, um, uh, who are looking for those and who are asking themselves, okay, what next? Yeah, thank you, Catherine. No, it's really insightful. Uh, and everybody, we, we are going to take some questions. We'll have our experts answer some questions probably at uh, about the 4.30 mark in about 10 or 15 minutes after we 
um, dig through a little bit more of uh, where where we're going from here. Josh, can you address something for a minute? You know, I was even talking I, I, talking to some people today, some smart attorneys, and uh, I think one concern with the idea that the Fourteenth Amendment protects uh, prenatal life, right, which is something that uh, we agree on, is one objection is that this is not an originalist argument that, oh, you know, what brought us to Roe is that we got, you know, five or six originalists on the court. Originalism is the only reasonable way to interpret things. And, you know, the, the Constitution has never said before that abortion should be prohibited nationwide, right, on its own. Uh, so why does the 14th Amendment say that now, you know, 100 years after it's been ratified? Is this an originalist argument? And can we ultimately, you know, persuade people who identify uh, first and foremost as originalists uh, to embrace this view that the 14th Amendment should protect life and prohibit abortion? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of goes to what I was just, you know, discussing earlier with, you know, when you look at the historical records from when the 14th Amendment was adopted in the 1860s, it was very clear that unborn children were persons, that the language that the drafters chose was was intentionally expansive to include every member of the human race. And, you know, even even Justice Harry Blackman in the Roe v. Wade majority opinion uh, he acknowledged that if personhood is established, the case for a co- constitutional right to abortion collapses. And this is a quote for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. And so, you know, it's perfectly consistent with originalism to you know, hold the view that the equal protection of the laws must be applied to any person. And that includes unborn persons who were considered in 1868 to be persons and who we now know better than ever to be members of the human family and members of the human species deserving of the equal yeah. protection of the laws. Josh, engage with this one for me for a minute. Somebody said this to me, that if the Supreme Court was to rule that on the basis of the 14th Amendment, abortion is illegal nationwide because every American has a constitutional right to life on the 14th Amendment, they, they, this, uh, an objector might say, if the court does that, that's just like a pro-life Roe v. Wade. You know, like Roe v. Roe did that. Roe took, away, took the, the rights away from the people to decide this amongst themselves. And so pro-lifers would be uh, making a strategic error by pushing for this. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that I think it falls into the trap of believing that there's a democratic right to choose uh, whether abortion should be illegal or legal. Um, in reality, there's democratic processes are justified by the fact that every individual, every person gets a say and that the equal natural rights of each individual. Right. You ca- you can't deny this is something that Lincoln talked about in the in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. The whole question comes down to whether it's a person or not, and no democratic process can deny those basic fundamental human rights to others because that would vitiate the very basis of having a democratic process in the first place. So I, I disagree that it's uh, you know the opposite of Roe v. Wade in the sense that it's just a pro-life Roe v. Wade. Um, it, it would actually be upholding our basic constitutional values, values that are already written into the Constitution explicitly in the text, the equal protection of the laws. And I think it's perfectly consistent with democracy as well, because that is the Constitution that we have, and it already protects the right to life properly interpreted. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Catherine, you know, like I said at the very beginning of this stream, I think that this view is on the ascendancy, right? If this is a stock, it's a buy stock. Uh, You know, the pro-life movement is moving towards the position that the 14th Amendment should protect all human life. And the Stobbs decision is a great jumping off point. But I think, right, the two two biggest things that we need to do, the obstacles we need to overcome, is just one, education. A lot of pro-life people, 
even people who are well-educated on the legal issues don't necessarily understand the the validity of this theory because for years and years and years, the pro-life position has just been, you know, reverse row and send it back to the states. Uh, So this is adding a bit to that. This is a next step. So how do you think we educate people and especially folks who might have the opportunity to influence law? I know you speak to a lot of law students. You sort of speak to uh, elites, as we would say, legal elites. So how do we how do we communicate this uh, this theory and uh, get it out there more? How it's it, it is it's the right view of the Constitution. Uh, it is simpatico with originalism, and it's it's strategically the right move for the pro life movement. It really is. You know, this has always been the next step. It's just that a lot of people hadn't quite gotten there in their thinking yet. And it makes sense because Roe v. Wade was um, was holding us back in so many ways Um, to have Roe overturned finally and Casey overturned. It's almost like the starting bell. You know, finally, we're able to actually start to to work um, even more effectively than ever before towards good, um, sound, holistic care uh, for moms and dads and babies. Uh, and so this really is an inflection point in American history. So re- this reversal, um, not only does it correct the historic injustice, um, but it, it restores hope for the fundamental human right to life and for us to be able to enact policies that support that. Um, so really what we need to do is just continue to talk about this. You know, Josh and, and Chad Peck and I, we um, we wrote a piece um, talking about the Fourteenth Amendment and and next steps for you know a pro life administration, um, based on President Biden's uh, statement earlier. Not sure that we're there quite yet, um, but but that's kind of the the next step is to continue talking about it to start um, pushing forward towards that and and we're. We're in and both and 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 all of the above organization at Americans United for Life. So we absolutely um, want to pursue that. We want to pursue state policy. You know, we need to be working on every level to um, to reassure people, to give people hope, to give people resources and support, and to educate folks about what. Um, about what's possible. And that includes absolutely the 14th Amendment um, options and being able to, to move forward along those lines, because that's a critical piece of this. We can't end with, uh, with our nation being piecemeal, you know, with some states, uh, you know, strongly pro-life and protecting life, and then other states, you know, just throwing in the towel. Yeah, great point, Catherine. In a minute, I want to, before we start taking questions, uh, bring in uh, another great friend on this show, uh, Tom Shakely, who's a terrific, um, terrific advocate in his own right for the movement. But just to jump off what you said, Catherine, you know, at live action, right, the main thing we do is communicate, communicate to millions of people on persuasion and education, distribute resources, videos. And here's one thing I can tell you, right, because we have so many followers and great activists who are from blue states, pro-abortion states. This is a great victory for all of America. But if you live in a state, right, like California, that not only is codified the right to abortion, but it's going to subsidize it, not only for people who live in the state, they're going to pay for people to fly in across the country to come to California to kill their unborn children. Uh, it, this, can, this is a bittersweet day because in many ways, at least I think for the, the foreseeable future, the short and medium term, this is going to push some of these blue state extremist state legislators and governors further into that position, right? It's like that's what sort of people do when they're when they're backed into a threat you know what i mean they they get uh they calcify even if it's even if it's a bad position and so tom what i want you to speak to for a minute is the hope 
the hope that the idea that the court will one day fully uh, implement the right to life that is uh, innate in the 14th Amendment, uh, prohibit abortion nationwide, give every American, including the tiniest little Americans, the pre-born Americans, the right to life. Talk about that hope and the way that it can even encourage people who live in uh, polities that might not seem very sympathetic to life right now. Yeah, happy to do it, Noah. I mean, look, what Josh and Catherine have been talking about so far is as much about our future as it is about the past, the past of the pro-life movement, all the steps that have gotten us here. And so when I think about uh, our future, and it's a future truly full of hope, um, you know, why is that the case? Well, it's because we have the blueprint to go forward. We've been executing it for decades. I think you see this uh, in a lot of the rhetoric from folks, pro-abortion activists and others, you know, kind of incredulous news media sometimes and others who are asking questions that, you know, if you've been involved in the pro-life movement for even just a year or two, well, you know the answers to already, but they don't because they haven't been involved with it. They haven't been volunteering at a pregnancy resource center. They haven't been donating to their local church or their local outreach organization. They haven't you know, fostered a spirit of welcome and a spirit of hospitality, maybe even in their own families, amongst their own friends. Um, you know, this, this kind of approach, it's like Catherine mentioned in all of the above approach. Well, the same is true in our own lives. Uh, our hope is based in our ability to embody the love that we want to see in our country. Uh, you know, the laws, the law and policy that Josh and Catherine are speaking to is so crucial. Um, but all of it has to be grounded uh, not only in reality, but in in practicing love. Uh, and that can sound so fluffy, right? But, you know, really, it's it's incarnated in particular actions. Have you asked someone in your family, you know, has been struggling, you know, how you can help them? That's the sort of response that it takes. Uh, and, you know, we know from being within the pro-life movement that we're already so good at that. Uh, so that's a great reason to be hopeful for the future. We've got to keep doing more of it. We've got to figure out how to systematize it. Yeah, great points, Tom. You know, we'll start taking questions in a minute. Before, I just want to give Josh one more chance um, to talk about uh, just one, one really, really important point, I think. So we're talking about the 14th Amendment right now. We're saying that the Dobbs decision, which says there is no right to abortion in the Constitution, this is the time when the pro-life movement needs to move towards, yes, there is no right to abortion in the Constitution, but there is a right to life. Our Constitution is not silent. So, Josh, you know, Catherine even brought this up, right? Abraham Lincoln, you know, said a house divided against itself cannot stand. What do you think is the dangers of this bifurcated America that we're entering in right now, where approximately half the states will be pro-life, approximately half the states will be pro-abortion? Why is it sort of eminently important, right, that we that the pro-life legal movement especially does not rest on our laurels, that we immediately start pushing for, for bold action and innovation? Yeah, I, I think that you're beginning to see a lot of the same uh, situations as you actually saw before we had the 14th Amendment during the antebellum period when when slavery existed, when northern states and southern states uh, used their state laws as weapons against one another to either promote freedom or promote slavery. And I think you're seeing something similar play out right now as we see places like Connecticut and California open up, you know, the, position themselves as abortion sanctuaries nationwide. 
nationwide for for and and companies funding their employees to travel over state lines to obtain abortions. You know, Justice Kavanaugh and his concurrence today, uh, you know, seemed to opine or tried to opine on something that wasn't really before the court about this question about people traveling over state lines to obtain abortions. Um, and I think that 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 sort of he you know he seemed to think that. You know, we could just get the court out of the abortion business and by deciding Dobbs and remaining neutral on the question of abortion, that the judiciary just wouldn't have to weigh in on these sorts of questions. And I think that that's profoundly short-sighted and misguided because these questions are not going away. These are going to continue to be litigated. It's going to, I think it's going to accelerate and escalate as these states pass laws that have radically divergent views about life. And so I think Catherine was exactly right to quote Lincoln saying, you know, we cannot long endure half slave, half free. I think the same thing that was true when, when Lincoln said those words in eighteen in the 1850s are true today in the 2020s with respect to abortion. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, and thank you, Tom. Those are all great points. Let's do a few minutes just of, of questions. Uh, you know, you can request to speak in this amazing Twitter space technology, and we'll see uh, if, if we can get a few people's questions answered. Uh, you know, if you want to direct your question towards a specific panelist or if you just want to direct them uh, towards all of us and we can all, uh, you know, like sharks to chum, swim in the water and try to answer. So first, I think the person who's been waiting the longest is uh, Empowered Youth Coalition. I'm going to give you the opportunity, add you as a speaker, and then after I add the speakers, I'll add the questions. I'll remove them as speakers, but uh, I'll add you and then you can unmute yourself and ask the question. I uh, just kind of want to throw a question out for the panel and uh, throw chum to the sharks. Um, I love that. Appreciate you using that. (laughs) I, uh, (laughs) when reading through the decision, I was uh, really drawn to the court's use of ordered Liberty. Uh, and I want to know, uh, how much of ordered Liberty participated, uh, to you guys in reading the decision, how much of their usage, their usage of ordered Liberty was in their decision when considering the opposing parties with their interests and how can we use the legal doctrine of ordered liberty to further our pro-life movement? Sure. Yeah, I can comment on that just briefly. I think that that was an important part of the decision. And that phrase ordered liberty is actually rooted in a test that is deeply historical, looking back to our nation's uh, traditions and values uh, and, and laws going back over the centuries. And so that that principle of ordered liberty, I think, kind of gets a little bit to what I was discussing earlier about why it's important that we don't just treat this as a victory for the democratic process, when in reality, no democratic process can can rightly or justly violate the fundamental basic human rights of those that make up the community. And so I think that that phrase ordered liberty is very important. It points back to the history, which in this opinion, the Dobbs opinion was so important for finding no constitutional right to abortion and finding that in fact, states uh, overwhelmingly protected life throughout our nation's history and at common law. And so I think that you're right to, uh, to point on that and to press on that question. I would agree with that. And I would also point out that um, that the court here in Dobbs engaged in exactly the kind of analysis that the Roe court didn't. When they go through the analysis of ordered liberty, they go through um, our, our traditions and our customs as a nation, and um, and they really start to analyze, um, is there any uh, any history, any precedent for this kind of, um, for this kind of, um, 
of so-called right to be established. Um, I think that's a large part of why constitutional scholars for 50 years on both the left and the right, conservatives and liberals, textualists, originalists, um, people who decide based on what they had for breakfast in the morning, they all have said for 50 years that Roe is not based on, on our constitution. And that's a large part of why. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for that great question. Okay, if anybody wants to ask a question, like I said, just send a request. Adonis, I'm going to put you through uh, to ask a question. And Adonis, you're in. You're just muted. Okay, now. thanks. So um, today is a wonderful day. I've been praying for this day for five years now. When I was 16, I got down on my knees and I prayed to God that I would see the end of abortion in this country. But the only thing I feel is missing at this time is some type of you know teeth to this um I feel like there has to be some punishment for doctors that help their patients obtain an illegal an abortion in like some liberal state like California. They should face criminal penalty, penalties for that. We can't have some type of you know underground railroad of abortions going on in this country. We have to punish those doctors and patients that are seeking and obtaining abortions. Thanks, Adonis. Appreciate that. I think that's that's a great question, and I think it also leads. Uh, maybe Catherine, you could lead on this since you guys do so much state policy at AUL, uh, addressing Adonis's question, and also just w what do we think about some of these laws that pro-life states are passing, uh, trying to maybe penalize people who cross state lines specifically to get an abortion, and these abortion magnet states like California, New York, New York, and Illinois, who are incentivizing that. Yeah, um, that's a, a really good question. Um, I, I would say that, um, that, first of all, we need to look back to the history of, um, of abortion in America and how abortion has been, um, has been treated for so long. And, um, and when you look at our history, when you look at the way that, that women in particular were viewed, you know, over over decades, over centuries, lawmakers recognized that women are the second victim of abortion. Um, you know, for decades now, women have been told abortion is a constitutional right. Um, that thing inside their womb is not a human being, not a child, but just a clump of cells or a blob of tissue. And, um, and also lawmakers recognized that they need women. They need women in order to be able to pursue justice, to be able to, um, to, be able to, to address the abortionist in court. And so, um, you know, there are better ways forward than that. Um, there are more humane ways and ways that really work to bring everyone on the same team. Um, you know, in fact, I, I wrote a white paper about this um, in, in, um, in collaboration with Rehumanize International on, um, on how to, to really find a way to holistically address the problem with all of the interested parties, including the woman, including the partner, including, um, including the parents, the siblings, the friends, the institutions, maybe the schools or the businesses, um, certainly the abortion facility, the abortions, the staff, all of those people taking a look at them and their individual needs and what we need to do in order to, to bring healing, to reduce recidivism, and make sure that, um, that we're working together to build a culture of life. So um, it, it really is, um, it, it's, a long, it's a long question, it's a long answer um, that, that brings in hundreds of years of history, that brings in um, the way that the abortionists were the, one tr the ones trying to, to get the women prosecuted so that, so that they couldn't be, you know, 
turned against against the abortionists um, so that there'd be some kind of incentive for them. But also it, it's a story of hope. It's a story um, where there's so much possibility for healing for everyone who's been involved or touched by abortion. Um, and, and I think that that really is what we need to focus on is um, is finding that way forward together. Thanks, Catherine. Josh, you want to take a crack at this too? I think that, you know, so Justice Kavanaugh, right, if anybody read his concurrence, not only did he throw, try to throw cold water on the 14th Amendment idea, right, he's misguided there. He also seemed to try to throw cold water on these states, right? I know Missouri, for sure, has been tra- tried to pass a law like this, uh, and other states are trying to, which is saying that, right, we are a pro-life state, we have more or less abolished abortion, uh, you other other states should not be incentivizing our residents to go across state lines to break our state law. That's the idea. Now it's state law. And I know that uh, there's different opinions on this. We're trying to sort of figure out maybe the best practice. But I at least think these state legislators and governors are on the right track of trying to uh, ensure these laws have teeth, as the question asker said and ensure that they're not, that people aren't being almost bribed by pro-abortion states to go across state, state lines to break state law. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, you know, this is one of those things that wasn't presented to the court. Uh, there was no briefing on this question about whether there's, you know, an interna- interstate right to travel to obtain an unlawful abortion in the state where you're traveling from. Uh, yet Justice Kavanaugh decided to, you know, address that in a, in one or two sentences. I don't think that that, I think, I think that that's not the end of the story. I think there's going to be uh, continued discussions about, you know, aiding and abetting abortion uh, by facilitating abortions across state lines. That's clearly domestic conduct within a state itself and not across state lines. Uh, you know, and to the extent that there is interstate travel going on, there is, um, you know, a federal interest in interstate commerce. So, for example, the businesses that send abortion pills across state lines uh, by mail, that's actually, there is a criminal statute dealing with that that prohibits sending abortions through the, uh, abortion medications through the mail uh, for those purposes. And so I think that that sort of interstate activity is an area where we can prosecute these, you know, abortion peddlers where they're sending pills across state lines to try and promote abortion within a state that is, you know, staked out a policy that we're going to protect life. We're going to protect women and children in our in our state from these dangerous and deadly abortifacient drugs. So that's like one example, I think, where this is, I think it's going to continue to be litigated. And I don't think that Justice Kavanaugh's kind of one-off, one or two sentences in the concurrence is going to be the end of the story. Yeah, that's right, Josh. That's a great point. Well, let's, let's wrap it up here just sort of with some closing thoughts. Um, you know, Catherine, maybe our final question for you can just be, I know that you guys interface or interfacing with state legislators all the time. Uh, if you're, if you're a state, if you were talking to a state legislator and the state doesn't have a whole lot of protections for life on the books and you had a minute to tell them what they should do now that Dobbs is gone, uh, what are we saying? What are you telling state? How, how are you advising state legislators to work, uh, immediately to protect life in their communities? I think that's probably a longer answer than one minute, because like I said, we're, we're in all of the above type of organization, right? Um, 90 seconds. Yeah. Okay. 90. Got it. Uh, So we, we, we want to focus on enshrining protections for every mother and every father and every child in every state. And we want to work to build a future that just transcends all that 
50 years of abortion violence and that allows everyone to thrive. Now that can have a lot of different policy solutions. Um, it can look a lot of different ways, you know, depending on the state, depending on the needs, et cetera. You know, it, it, there's no one size fits all answer, but, but we want to look at everything that we can um, to make sure that we're looking at a future where abortion violence is abolished and where we can focus on providing mothers and, and children the absolute for unequivocally rejecting the violence of abortion. Yeah. Well, that's that's terrific, Catherine. Thank you. Um, Josh, are you still, let's see, are you still here? Josh, are you still on with us? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, terrific. Well, may, maybe, thank you, Catherine, for saying that, for joining us. Josh, maybe you can close with this. You know, it took the Supreme Court 50 years to rectify their horrific error in Roe v. Wade. Uh, is it going to take 50 years to get them to recognize the 14th Amendment's right to life? And what are these immediate next steps that people can take on this? Yeah, I, I don't, I hope and I pray, and I don't think it will take 50 years, but it will be a long-term goal. And so I want to underscore, I think I completely agree with what Catherine was saying in, in terms of this all, you know, all of the above approach. And that's exactly the approach that I think we all need to take, because as we advocate for this 14th Amendment argument, we know that in the meantime, we're going to have to be fighting in the states to enact life protective laws in these states that support women and their partners and their children uh, to be able to have life. Uh, we know that at the federal level, we want to fight for this 14th Amendment interpretation. And we can do that at each branch, uh, you know, Congress under its Section 5 authority to enforce by appropriate legislation the terms of the 14th Amendment can pass legislation prohibiting abortion nationwide uh, if, we, if, we can, if we push them to do so. And so they have that authority uh, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to enforce that equal protection guarantee. And we need to urge them to do that. Uh, Catherine and I wrote an article uh, together, together with Chad Pecknold, about the executive branch's authority to, within that department, within that branch, implement an interpretation of the 14th Amendment that secures equal protection within all of the eight federal agencies and departments and all of the statutes and programs that they administer. And then finally, within the judicial branch, that's where these litigation, the, this next stage of litigation is going to take place in the 14th Amendment argument, you know, persuading uh, the legal profession and judges and presenting them with the historical evidence that really hasn't been uh, highlighted before in many of these cases, partly because Roe had put a damper on it and prevented these arguments from coming to light. And then I think finally, just, you know, the long term goal as we move toward this 14th Amendment interpretation, equal protection, I think, you know, that at, at the end of the road, we see the same uh, goal of, you know, a constitutional amendment that more carefully reticulates uh, the obligations that we have to the unborn child and prohibits abortion, just like Catherine was talking about earlier. So that's kind of the all of the, all of the above approach that we have at every level of government. Every branch has a role to play. And I think we can win. I think we can secure the equal protection of the laws. It's going to be another fight. It's going to take longer. But, you know, we just won. We just had a big victory. And so don't be discouraged by the idea that we have to keep fighting. We've known this all along. We're going to keep fighting for life. And we're going to be out there marching for life again this year to protect women and children uh, from the violence of abortion. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, you know, I guess I'll just close with this, that live action wants everyone to remember. The Constitution is not silent on abortion. The Constitution protects life. This is a huge, huge victory, though, today. And, you know, the more that we talk about this stuff, that's, what it, that's winning the fight. 
because the it's, it's truth, you know what I mean? And the truth is like a lion, right? If you let it loose, it will defend itself. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Catherine and Josh, again, for, uh, for joining us and offering your expertise. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, stay safe out there and work to protect life. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. If you aren't already, consider becoming a monthly donor to Americans United for Life so that we can advance precisely the pro-life future that Catherine Glenn Foster spoke about in today's conversation. Visit AUL.org to learn about our work, our impact, and why your gift matters so much at this crucial time. And when you're ready, visit AUL.org give to make a one-time gift or sign up as a monthly donor. I am Tom Shakely. Thank you for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.